Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, you having a good weekend? Feeling encouraged after that time of worship? We'll fix that in just a moment for you. We're going to be talking about politics this morning. Uh, now, I, I'm kidding, sort of. Um, we are going to be talking about politics, so, uh, because that's the topic that we've come to in the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. We'll be in Mark chapter 12. Now, um, I, I say I'm kidding, sort of, because look, I, I know that this is not a topic of polite conversation anymore. Um, I know that there's a reason uh, that when you get that holiday party invite, it says, hey, you're welcome, bring whatever weird gifts you want, but no politics talk. Like, I I know there's a reason that our friend groups, we've just kind of said like, hey, we're just going to agree to not talk about this so that we don't kill each other over this. Like, I I, I get all of that, Um, and yet, um, here's what I'll say. I I don't know, maybe this will encourage you. We'll see. Um, We are not the first to live in a day where politics is a contentious issue. Uh, Jesus lived in a day when politics was a contentious issue. An issue that you'd have to put asterisks on your Super Bowl party invite saying, hey, come, but no talk of Tom Brady because I won't tolerate anyone speaking ill of the goat. And I certainly won't tolerate politics talk because if someone kills someone at my party, it's going to ruin the day. Um, See, Jesus lived in a day that was much like that. And what we're going to see in our text this morning um, is really this new and life-giving way that Jesus gives us to relate to this explosive topic. Um, And so I I don't know how you walked in here this morning. Uh, Maybe you're the kind of person that listens to talk radio and you're like, finally something I care about at church. Um, Maybe you're the kind of person that are shrinking down right now and going, I can't believe today is the day I came to church. Um, Here's what I'll say. Um, If you take this sermon to heart, if we take what Jesus has to say to us to heart today, um, I believe that you and I, we can become the most life-giving people in our friend groups and our families imaginable. Because, I mean, can you imagine if when you opened your mouth and talked about politics, it led to love and life for people? Um, I I know that sounds like fantasy. Let's look at it. This is what Jesus is doing. Mark chapter 12, we'll pick it up in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to try to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So let me set the scene for you here. Um, We are still in the Tuesday of the last day of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. We're going to be in this Tuesday for four more weeks. This is a long day in the life of Jesus. And um, what I want to do is catch you up on how we got here because that really sets up and frames kind of the question and what's going on today. Um, When we kicked off this series in the final week of Jesus' life, we saw that on Sunday, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem as a triumphant king. The crowd shouted, Hosanna. They said, save us now. You're the king we've been waiting for. You must be the Messiah. Let's do this thing. And then on Monday, um, we saw Jesus did something the crowds did not expect. He walked into the temple, and he saw how the people had lost their ways. How they had drifted so far from God's intentions and purpose where what was supposed to be a house of prayer had become a den of robbers and injustice. And so he flipped over tables. He challenged that. He said, this has to change. This is not what I have made you for. And what we saw last week was the religious leader's response to that challenge. That rather than repenting and finding life or walking away like an honest person, uh, the religious leaders, they played this game where they tried to redefine Jesus. To say, oh man, you don't really mean that. God doesn't really want that. I don't know, Jesus, that sounds a little legalistic. But now, that was last week, um, Jesus sees through their hypocrisy, and he exposes them in front of the crowd. He basically tells this parable that says, if you keep playing these games with me, you are going to end up on the wrong side of judgment day. Um, Now, uh, this, as you can imagine, made them furious. Uh, The text last week ended by saying they decided we're going to try to kill Jesus. Um, But they didn't have that kind of power. They needed help in getting that to happen. So now what they're going to do is they're going to shift to um, realizing now that they can't twist Jesus for their own purposes, they're going to shift to seeking to 
discredit him in front of the crowds so that the crowds will walk away from him so that he'll lose um, the popularity he has so that they can convince the Romans to kill him. And, And that's what's going on in our text. Mark says they come to him to try to trap him in his words. They try to get him to say something that's gonna get him in trouble with the crowd, to say something unpopular so that the crowd will go, Oh man, you believe that, Jesus? No thank you, I'm going to walk away. Or maybe best case scenario for these guys to say something illegal so that the Romans hear it and they'll take care of this Jesus problem for them. And so how do they seek to trap him? Well, they come with a series of questions um, about controversial topics. Now these questions are just like last week. Their heart's not in it. They're not a genuine, curious seeker. They're coming to trap him. They are hypocrites, as Jesus says. And the way they do it is with these controversial questions on a series of topics that were hot-button issues in Jesus' day. Um, and we're going to see three questions over the next three weeks. We're going to look at a question about politics and taxes today. Next week, we're going to look at a question about death and the afterlife. And then in three weeks from now, we're going to look at um, really questions about morality and what does God want from us and how should we be living our lives. And um, what I love about Jesus, because these are such important questions. See, this is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't uh, just shut the religious leaders down like he did last week. Um, But he actually takes their uh, hypocritical questions and uses them to teach the crowds about these important topics. And so Jesus is going to take a bad situation, um, bad people, um, they have bad motives, and he's going to use that for good. And he's still doing the same today, where he'll take bad actors with bad motives and bring good out of it. And so that's what he's going to do. He's going to take these questions and teach the crowd and really all of us who would listen and open up Mark's gospel and hear from Jesus today, he'll teach all of us about these important topics if we want to actually hear from him. Uh, and it all begins with politics. Are you ready? All right. Um, so what Mark tells us is, um, is we get into this first question here, is that the religious leaders, kind of the religious establishment, they sent two groups to go sent, uh, ask Jesus this first question. They send Um, the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him with this political question. Now, that right there is an unusual thing. Um, The Pharisees and the Herodians had about as much in common back then as Democrats and Republicans do today. Um, The uh, Herodians were pro-King Herod. You hear it in their name where um, they liked Roman rule, they were pro-imperialism, they, they wanted to maintain the status quo. Caesar's in charge of Jerusalem, Herod's a good guy kind of ruling on his behalf, and we just want to keep things going the way they're going, we've got a good thing going on. So that's the Herodians on the one hand. The Pharisees on the other hand, they saw um, Caesar's occupation of the Holy Land is really an abomination before God. They said, uh, God alone is our king. We're not going to bow to any king on the throne. And so the Pharisees were in favor of open revolt to um, try to get the Romans out. And so you've got two groups of people. One group that says, hey, we like the Romans. We like them in the land. Another group of people that goes, I can't believe the Romans are in the land. This is the worst thing ever. We got to get out from underneath it. These guys have very little in common. This would be like saying today, um, to start the story, that you've got like a Bernie Sanders intern and a Donald Trump intern, and they walk into a bar. It's like the start of a bad joke. You're, you're, you're like expecting, and then it got violent, and then they put hands on each other's throats and um, punched each other's faces, but that's not what goes on here. What we see is these two um, unlikely friends have been united. Here's Jesus for you. He's the great uniter of people. He takes two people that have every reason to hate each other, and he unites them either as brothers and sisters in a new family or um, by giving them a greater enemy than their political ideology. And so you get the Pharisees and the Herodians. It kind of starts off as a bad joke. Mark's reader certainly would have read it that way. Like, what are these guys doing together? Why aren't they hurting each other? And then you read on and you find out why. Because more important than um, their views about Rome is they both feel threatened by Jesus. And so they come and they try to trap him in his words. And what they say to him is they ask him this question that they know will get Jesus into trouble. These guys are so crafty. They say, um, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, And it's a good trap because here's the thing. If Jesus says no, 
No, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. The Romans are going to take hold of Jesus and execute him because that's treason. Um, That's happened in the Holy Land before. Revolutionaries with popular followings that say don't pay taxes to Caesar. The Romans built an empire by learning how to brutally put down charismatic leaders that would say don't submit to Rome. And so if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they're going to get their wish. The Romans will kill Jesus, and in their mind, that's the end of the Jesus movement. But if he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jewish people that primarily um, despised Roman rule, that like the Pharisees um, felt like salvation would mean getting the Romans out of the land, well, then the populace, all the people would go, well, Jesus is just another sellout. If he's not here to defeat Rome, then what's he here to do? So they they ask him, this is so tricky. They ask him this question that if he says, um, uh, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to have trouble with the Romans. If he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to have trouble with the crowds. Either way, Jesus goes away. Um, This would be like asking today of a pastor, like, hey, should we uh, be wearing masks or not? What do you think about the ethics of this just personally? What's your opinion? Like, anything I can say on that's going to get me in trouble. That's going to get somebody mad at me. This is a tricky question. This is a good trap. But here's the thing. Jesus is greater than me. Jesus not only uh, springs the trap and avoids their trap, but he's going to teach us a beautiful new way to relate to politics as he answers this really tricky question. Let's look at it. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus, Jesus is so cool. Um, Let's talk about what just happened because uh, we live in a culture 2,000 years after this text where my guess is many of you have heard the term render to Caesar what is Caesar's uh, or if if you had the King James render unto Caesar um, the things that are Caesar's. uh, You've probably heard this before and so you almost kind of glaze over it. What Jesus just said is revolutionary. It is category breaking. It is earth shattering and that's why they marvel at him. Jesus' answer here, when he gives it, it says the whole crowds, including his enemies. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark, you know, the whole book, the crowds have been marveling. This time his enemies marvel at him. They're just like, we thought we had him trapped, and he gives us that. They all marvel, and my hope for us today is that we might marvel at Jesus' answer as we can hear it um, as he originally spoke it. So let's look at it. They ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, and what does Jesus do? Well, he says, bring me a denarius. Now, a denarius was a common Roman coin in this day, um, which was worth about a day's wages for um, kind of a blue-collar worker. Um, so kind of put that amount in your head. Uh, and here's what it looks like. I actually have a photo so that we can see this, so we can put our world in, ourselves in the world of where this story happened. Um, the face on there that you're looking at, um, that handsome fella is Tiberius Caesar, um, who ruled the world from 14 to 37 uh, AD. So this is the time that Jesus is living. This is the time this is interacting. These are the coins that would have been in their pockets. And, and you can go see these. If this isn't good enough for you, you can go see one in a museum if you want to go look at them in person. Um, or you can just Google it later today if you want a better picture of that. But the coin has um, Tiberius Caesar right on the front of it. It is his face on there. And what Jesus says is, bring me a denarius. And what he says to them is, uh, whose inscription do you see on there? Um, Or your Bible might say image, which I think is a very good translation because this is the same word translated um, to translate everything we talked about in Genesis 1 about the image of God. Same word. And so he says, whose image is on the coin? And they're like, well, Caesar's. And so Jesus says, okay then, well, because you said it, why don't you then give the things that you say are Caesar's to Caesar and give to God the things that are God's? 
And, and everyone marvels because that's an amazing response. And like I said, we've heard that so many times. Um, it almost either means nothing to us or we have some preconceived notions about what he's saying that I think I just want to take the morning to slow down and unpack that statement. Um, and, and there's a, a pastor in New York named Tim Keller who um, famously said that Jesus does three things when it comes to politics. Um, he says that Jesus rejects political simplicity, Jesus rejects um, political um, primacy, and Jesus rejects political complacency. Um, and I think that's such a helpful way to understand what Jesus is doing with this incredible teaching here. Um, and so everything else you'll get today is from me, as I've sat in this text and prayed, and God, what do you, God, God, what do you want to do for us today? But I just, I can't unhear those three terms. I think those are three great categories that we can use as we think about what Jesus just said. So we're going to walk through them one at a time, and we'll start with number one, Jesus rejects political simplicity. Um, we live in a day of political polarization where uh, we are being told, um, pick your party and hate everyone on the opposite side. Um, and you'll hear this from both political parties. I know some of you are like, I know the other guys say that. Yeah, your guys say that too. Um, what both parties say is uh, the other party's trying to destroy this country, and we are the ones for freedom and justice, and we're trying to, you know, just protect the world from all those fools over there. And, um, and, and the idea is you're supposed to pick one and hate the other one and, and and we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, which is, uh, I think, just kind of a ridiculous statement on its face if you actually look at either major party platform. Um, and, and I'm well aware I'm going to get in trouble with some of the things I'm saying today. Just know I'm your pastor. I love you. I'm trying to preach the word of God honestly to you. Um, but man, if you look at either party platform, they both claim to be, we're the good ones, they're the bad ones. You look at it with your Bible open, and neither one lines up perfectly. Both have their issues. And here's why. This shouldn't surprise us if we have a good theology of humanity and sin, that no humans are so perfect that they have the exact way to God, and no humans are so broken that there is nothing um, good in what they are saying. That humans are complex, that life is complex, that you can't say these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. Like if I hear another person tell me you can't vote for this person and still be a Christian, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm not saying that you would feel good voting for that person. I'm just saying that, um, well, I'll, I'll say it to you this way. I have uh, served with Jesus-loving people who have voted for people that I've been told that you can't love Jesus and vote for. So what do you do with that? See, this is political simplicity of just saying, hey, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. We don't do any critical thinking here. We don't seek to understand, well, why are you voting for that person? We just go, oh, you're voting for the bad one. I can't think at a critical level. Bad, good, and we get angry at one another. And, and Jesus... Uh, Jesus rejects that kind of thinking. I, I want you to see that in the text here. See, these, these guys come to Jesus with a yes or no question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Are we Herodians on the good team? Or is it those nutty Pharisees over there that are on the good team, Jesus? Why don't you pick a side? Are you a conservative or are you a liberal? And do you notice that he doesn't give them a yes or no answer? Like, I think we all need to sit with that today. We live in this 140-character snap reaction, instant kind of, I'm just going to give you my gut reaction, yes or no world, and Jesus does something that rejects that. Jesus rejects the binary they've given him of bad guys and good guys, and he gives them an answer that invites them to use the brain he gave them to deeper critical thinking. To say, hey, um, in this world, life is more complicated than who's the bad guys and the good guys. Everyone is a mixed bag. And so I'm going to give you a teaching that's going to invite you to think deeper on this and really get to the heart and purposes of God. That by the grace of God, with the spirit of God and the help of God's people, you might walk more fully in his purposes. So Jesus rejects political simplicity. And I'm telling you, one of the most refreshing things that you and I can do in this day is do the same. Now, now hear me, I'm not telling you to vote for the other guy. That would be political simplicity. I'm saying have a little more grace for people to vote for the other guy. Maybe have a little curiosity that says, hey, tell me how you can vote for them because I don't understand how a Christian could feel that way, but I know you love the Lord. Can you help me? Because you might discover, it might not change your mind on who you vote for you, but you might discover that, you know, 
life is more complicated than you originally thought and that that person has some reasons for what they are doing and maybe we don't need to be so angry with one another after all. Um, Jesus rejects political simplicity and I think that if we want to be a refreshing people, we've got to do the same. That brings us to number two. Um, Jesus rejects political primacy. Um, Now, I think this is really at the heart of what's going on in this story. Um, See, they're not just asking Jesus about any old tax. Like, I was reading this, and I'm like, taxes are so unpopular. Those guys are so tricky. And then I read the kind of history behind this, and I'm like, oh, this is even more tricky than I know. So sorry, I have to nerd out and tell you what's going on, because it'll actually make a difference to how you understand this story. Um, When they ask Jesus about this tax, they're not asking about any old tax. They're asking about the poll tax, something that was called the poll tax. It was a very controversial tax in that day. We know that for several reasons. We have parallel accounts in Mark and Luke's gospel. Additionally, by asking them for a denarius, which was the price for the poll tag, all the data lines up. Let me tell you about the poll tax. Um, The poll tax... um, It was super controversial with the Jewish people, and it wasn't really about the amount. The amount was one denarius. That's one day's work for a blue-collar worker. That's not a ton of money. Some of you would be like, could I just pay one day's wages for my taxes this year? I'd be so happy for that. Um, I think in California, we'd all be like, score! Um, So the issue wasn't the amount. Um, The issue was the symbolism. Because what a poll tax was is it wasn't a tax on your goods, it was a tax on you. It's a tax on your head. It it was basically a a fee that you paid um, just for the privilege of being one of Caesar's um, citizens, or they're not even all citizens, people living under Caesar's rule. Um, And so what the poll tax was all about is, um, what this tax was basically saying is, you belong to Caesar. And so you pay Caesar this tax just for breathing his air. You live in Caesar's world, and as long as you pay your taxes, Caesar will be benevolent to you. But if you don't pay your taxes, Caesar's going to come and reclaim what is rightly his, which is the breath in your lungs. And so by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, on the one hand, what Jesus is saying is, sure, pay that controversial tax. Sure, pay that tax that you're all mad about, which on the one hand, you could just imagine like the blood curdling in some of the people in the crowd. Like they had an armed revolt 20 years prior when this tax was introduced. This was not a popular tax. So Jesus says something unpopular. He's like, sure, pay the tax. But notice what he also says. He says the coins go to Caesar because his image is on the coin, but... But whose image is on you? Was anyone here in our Genesis series? Whose image is stamped on every human being that's ever lived? God's. So do you see what he's saying? He, he, he's saying, yeah, sure, you can give Caesar some of what he wants. You can give him his money. I mean, his image is on the coin. It kind of belongs to him, but you can't give Caesar what he really wants, which is you. Because you belong to a greater king. You belong to God. And so sure, pay your taxes, which I'm sure infuriated at least half of the crowd. But what he says is, man, you can't give Caesar what he really wants, which is your heart, which is your allegiance, which is your devotion, which is your life, because Caesar's image in on you, you've not been made in Caesar's image. He's not a God. You are made in the image of God, and you belong to him, and total allegiance belongs to your creator alone, because just like the money belongs to Caesar because his image is on it, so you and I and every human that's ever lived rightly belongs to God because our creator put his image on us. Yeah. We're marveling now. This is awesome. See, um, here's what I'll point out. This is the first theory of limited government in human history. Um, now, see, we, we, again, we read this 2,000 years later after 2,000 years of history of this statement shaping the world. You have to realize up until this point, um, in every culture that you can find, uh, what people believed was that their kings and their rulers had divine authority that could not be questioned. This, this wasn't in any one culture. This was the universal idea that kings and rulers have authority from God to do whatever they want. Their authority is totally unlimited. And Jesus 
He steps into that space and he articulates something brand new for the first time that'll turn human history. What he says is, yeah, sure, Caesar may have some legitimate authority. You you should pay your taxes. And um, the New Testament, if you're curious about the the realm of a, a ruler's authority, will expand on this in Romans 13. So you can look at that this week. Uh, Paul will expand on Jesus' teaching. He says, sure, Caesar has a legitimate realm of authority in this world, but Caesar's realm of authority is not unlimited. Caesar is not a god. He cannot command you how to worship. He cannot command you on ultimate reality. He cannot command your allegiance. In in fact, the list of what Caesar can do is a far shorter list of the things that he cannot do because the gap between Caesar and God is infinite. Caesar might have the most powerful empire the world has ever known, but God made the world. And so what he says is, yes, God has given to kings and leaders and rulers in high places a certain level of authority, a certain sphere to operate in. And so we should operate within that but we cannot let those kings and leaders try to speak outside of their area of authority we cannot let that this is why when you get to the new testament when the rulers say hey you got to stop telling people about jesus the apostles are like hey you do what you want you can kill us if you want to Um, we're just going to see jesus quicker so please expedite the trip but as for us we have to obey god rather than man now now here's what i know some of us We are too eager to apply that and we deny that Caesar has any legitimate authority at all. Others of us, we, man, we deny that God has any legitimate authority at all. And we want to do whatever Caesar said. It is a tension, which I would return to the point of political simplicity. We we can't oversimplify this. We've got to ask for the help of the Spirit of God and Christian community to figure out what's going on here. But the heart of what Jesus is doing here. It's he's teaching a new way to relate to the governments of this world. One that I believe we must recover in our day because we live in a day where people are again um, with a a violence that I haven't seen in my lifetime. I know I'm young, but um, people are again embracing in our culture um, what Keller calls political primacy, and I think it's killing us. And, and Jesus' response here, it's the way out. So, so let's, let's talk about how this relates. Um, political primacy would basically be the idea that politics equals everything. Politics is everything. So you know the old catechism that says, what is your only hope in life and death? Someone embracing political primacy would say um, that my guy gets elected, that my bill gets passed, and that everything will be okay in the world. And, and, and some of you are like, oh my goodness, I wouldn't know that. I know my only hope in life and death is Jesus who is raised for me. Like, okay, okay, here's how to know if you're doing this. Let's just have some real talk this morning. Let's open our hearts and just ask that the Holy Spirit um, would use his word to kind of divide the thoughts and intentions of our heart, okay? Here's how to know if you're doing this. Um, if you spend more time listening to talk radio and reading the news than you do reading your Bible and talking to God in prayer, you might you might be falling into the era of political primacy where you're putting more of your hope in political things than in God things. You might. Um, if your coworkers, if you are known with your coworkers and your friends more for your politics um, than for your love for God or um, what you even believe about God, it's possible that politics has taken a prime spot in your life and that everyone else has seen what you might be blind to, that at some point Jesus was maybe on the throne of your life, but maybe you've kind of dethroned him a little bit and put politics a little bit higher in your life. It's possible that maybe that's what's going on. Um, It's possible that you're placing your ultimate hope and trust in politics, which when you do that, when you kind of have political primacy and say, this is my main hope in life, at least functionally speaking, um, what that is, is let's just use biblical language. That is making an idol out of politics, Uh, a false god that cannot save us. And and here's maybe another way to know, when you do this, um, this would be the reason that you're angry all the time. This would be the reason that you're just no fun to be around at family gatherings because darn it, look at what they're doing to the country. 
And, and I'm not saying that there is not dumb stuff going on. If you look at the country and you're happy right now, you, you need a wake-up call. Um, but I'm not talking about someone that laments brokenness. I'm talking about someone that is constantly focused on it and has no joy in the midst of all of it. Because this is what happens when you put your hope in an idol, to politics to save you, um, just like any other idol that we could put our hope in. It's not real. It's a crummy God. It can't save us. And so if we depend on a political ideology or a party or a platform to save us, what inevitably happens is we become disenchanted and disenfranchised and depressed because it can't deliver on the promises it's made. And, and I think this is so common in our world today. I think most of the people I talk to in my life, inside and outside of the church, probably fall into this category to some degree. Um, and, and it's so common out there that I, I want to talk about one particular expression that is common in the church. So I'm not going to just pick on Christians right now. This happens everywhere. But I want to talk about one particular expression that you'll see often in the church. Because if you read any study from young people about why they're leaving the church right now, what you're going to see is they're going to point to this dynamic. They're going to point to something that is being called today Christian nationalism. Now before you send me that email, let me define my terms. Okay? Because some people, they'll use Christian nationalism just to describe any Christian that would ever like open their mouth and say anything in public. Which is not historically what that term has meant. Let's, let's just... Use dictionary definitions here. Christian nationalism, it's an adjective Christian on the word nationalism. Nationalism is the idea that what happens in this country is the most important thing in the world. And so Christian nationalism, as it would be properly discussed, would be kind of sprinkling a little Jesus onto that ideology. The idea that our country comes first, and, and, and by sprinkling Jesus on, what you do is you say Jesus becomes a means to the end of our country being great in the world. And I'm going to look at my notes because I want to be really careful with what I say here because you could cut the tension in the room with a knife right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, here, here's what you'll often see happen with Christian nationalism. Um, what people will do is they will open their Bible and they will find promises made to the nation of Israel, which is God's chosen people in the Old Covenant, and they will apply them to the nation of America. You'll see this in things like the Jericho March. They take something that's for Israel and they apply it to America and say, we are now God's chosen people and we are now the last best hope for Christendom in the world. And like, man, I, let, let me say this. I'm so grateful that I've been born in this country and that I have the freedom to stand before you and preach the truth of God's word without worrying about someone busting down the doors and throwing me in jail right now. Like, I'm so grateful that I live where I live. But if I'm going to be grateful for that and preach this book to you, I have to tell you what the problem with that idea then is according to this book. Um, according to this book, the true Israel, Jesus Christ, has come. Uh, and, and now what God was doing through Israel has been made manifest through Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. That in Jesus Christ, the good news of God's grace has now gone to all nations, to all tribes, to all tongues. And so we live in this era where the church of Jesus Christ is meant to transcend borders. It's meant to go to the ends of the earth. And according to Jesus, we're to love all people, but particularly those of the household of faith, which means we would have more in common with the brother or sister in sub-Saharan Africa or in China than we do with our neighbor down the street that doesn't know and love Jesus yet here. And this is where it cuts against the idea of Christian nationalism that would say our country is the most important thing. And by reading prophecies about Israel into the church, what it does is it begins to cast every, spiritual, every, every political battle on spiritual terms. And so you'll see Jesus and Bible verses start showing up on political posters as if Jesus is for this party and against that party. In, in, in this ideology that would 
put a premium on one nation at the expense of others. I love you. I need to say this. It puts us at odds with the Jesus who says, go and proclaim the gospel to all nations. It puts us at odds with the Jesus who says, sure, give to Caesar what's his. Governments and nations are not a bad thing. Borders are okay. Like, they can do their thing. That's a real reality in this world. But don't you dare give to Caesar what belongs to God, which is your ultimate allegiance, which is your ultimate heart, and your ultimate priorities in life. That belongs to God alone. And, and I think for those that are caught up in Christian nationalism, I, I, I don't want to be hard on you this morning because here, our culture is just beating up on Christian nationalism right now, using it as a stick to just abuse and discredit anyone they disagree with. I don't want to beat you up this morning. I love you. Um, I want to just proclaim God's truth and God's grace to you and let the Holy Spirit work on your heart and tell you what's going on instead of me trying to be the Holy Spirit for you. But I, I will say this, for those caught up in Christian nationalism, um, if your focus is only on this kingdom in the world or primarily on this kingdom of the world, I think you miss out on what God's actually doing in the world. And by missing out on that, you can begin to, I believe, unintentionally treat people um, in very unchristlike ways. Um, you can begin to see people as the enemy when Jesus says, no, our, our real enemy is not flesh and blood. There's not a human on this earth that's your real enemy. It's the spiritual powers of darkness that are your real enemy. And, and again, I don't want to beat up on you this morning. I would just say, if you feel like the Holy Spirit's just tugging on you and you're like, oh, I don't like this. Um, I, I, I would just say it this way. There's an invitation in this text for you this morning. Jesus did not come to condemn you, to make you feel bad about your life. Jesus came so that you could find true life in his name. And, and so let me just say this. If you feel like maybe I've given too much of my heart to my country. Um, maybe I've taken a good thing like patriotism that works under my allegiance to Jesus and let it kind of supersede my allegiance to Jesus. If you feel like the Holy Spirit's prompting you there, what I will say is the invitation of Jesus to you this morning is to give him your heart back. If, if you come in prayer and say, Lord, I want my higher allegiance to be to you. I just, I don't even know where to begin. I promise you he's not going to say, wait, you were on that team, get out of here. That's the whole point of the cross and grace of Jesus is that there's no sin, there's no drift in our life that would be too great that if we come to him and say, man, I don't want this. I, I don't know how to move forward, but I know I want you to have primary spot in my heart. I promise you that's a prayer he's happy to answer this morning. And I promise you, you will not only be a freer person, but you will be a less anxious person as Christ reigns as Lord in your heart. And I'm telling you, it's not just you who will be a freer person, but it is our witness in the world that is at stake. And that is why I've taken these minutes to talk about that, because um, I feel burdened for the people that see images on TV and they think that's what Jesus is. Um, Jesus is a lot bigger than that. My hope is that we'll always be a church that proclaims a big Christ for all of life that is welcome to people across any political party, any persuasion, any background, anyone that wants to come and say, Jesus, you be king of my life, is welcome here. My hope is we can be a people that lift that high. All right, um, number three. Uh, Jesus rejects political complacency. See, some of you, um, for the last several minutes, you've been like, wow, he's really going off on that, but that's not my problem. I don't care too much about politics. In fact, I don't think about politics at all. Well, great, Jesus has something to say to you as well. Jesus rejects political complacency. See, um, I love Jesus. He's so cool. He addresses all of us. Um, see, here's the thing. Uh, I, I, I get the instinct. This is probably more of where I fall um, to go, okay, I don't want to be too into politics. I don't want to give too much of myself to that. So I'm just not going to think about it all. I'm just not going to vote on it at all. I'm just going to punt on thinking about this whatsoever. And, and here's what I'll say to you, if you can resonate with that at all. Um, if what Jesus is saying is true, that God's image is on us, 
Um, If all people have been made in the image of God, then that means where the image of God is being treated cheaply, that you and I have a responsibility as God's image bearers to do something about it. Right? See, like there's this popular idea, um, particularly among people that I know and love and do life with, um, to say something like, just take any old issue. Like we talked a couple weeks ago um, about abortion. You will often hear people say this, where they will say, um, hey, I personally believe that this is wrong, but who am I to push my beliefs onto anyone else? This would be political complacency to say, hey, I know what's true, I know what's just, but I'm not going to get in the game and use the vote that God's given me. I mean, can you imagine if William Wilberforce and his friends said that about slavery? Like, oh, I know it's wrong, but who am I to get involved? In fact, a lot of Christians did that, and we all look back on them and go, morons. Um, Can you imagine if Martin Luther King Jr. said, hey, I've got a dream, from the scriptures, but who am I to push out on anyone else? I'll just write that one down in my journal. Like, see, giving to God what is God's has never meant political complacency where we just shut our mouth and let, watch the world burn. That has never been what giving to God what is God's means. If we give him our ultimate allegiance, then that means that we're to image him in the world and that means that where human lives are being treated cheaply, we have to stand up and be a voice for the voiceless. And this can relate to several different issues. I gave you one example, but I think what can often happen is some people go, well, I don't want to go too extreme. And so we go to the other extreme of saying nothing and doing nothing. And, and if you resonate with that, I just want you to hear this, that the church of Jesus Christ has always been at her best when caught up in the love and life of God We've been so compelled by this life that we have tasted to bring that love and life to whatever nation and city and place and culture we find ourselves in. And this was true of the Jewish exiles in Jeremiah's day that were taught to seek the welfare of the city. This was true uh, of William Wilberforce and his friends who sought to affect unjust laws in the world. And this is ultimately true in Jesus, that God himself comes into our world to bring the light and the life of his kingdom where there is darkness. And so the church of Jesus Christ, we've always been at our best, not when we punt and stay silent, but when caught up in the love of Jesus, we begin to spread that love and that light in the midst of darkness. And look, I know it's complex. Like, well, how do you do that without making an idol out of politics? You should talk to the Holy Spirit in your small group about that this week. Right? Like, reject political simplicity that says I fall here or here. Let's enter into the game that God's called us to that is a messy, broken world with a new kingdom bursting forth in the middle of it and the power of God living in us to be agents of reconciliation if we would just lean in and let the word of God shape our minds. Let the spirit of God guide us and let the people of God be the community that they were called to be in our lives. So I know it's complex, but I want to say, I know there's some of you that are so afraid of Christian nationalism that you've just totally separated out your Christianity from your politics entirely. And I love you. I want to say that's an error as well. It's an error as well. And um, I think if we're honest, it comes from the same root as political primacy. It just expresses itself differently. So hey, look at that. No, no matter what error you fall into, we all have something in common, people. Um... See, I think the reason that we tend to put our hope into politics is because our vision of Jesus is too small. We, we think, oh man, Jesus is great for what happens after death. Like, get me to heaven, there's no one I trust more than Jesus. But, as long as I'm living in this world, like to fix my tax code, to fix the potholes on the road, to make more just laws. Like Jesus is great, but that love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that's not practical. That person sounds practical. And so here's what I think happens is we just have a small vision of Jesus that he's kind of for someday after we die. But as long as we live in this world, we like people that offer what seem to us more practical solutions, more realistic solutions. And it's the same thing for those embracing political complacency. 
where we fail to think about how Jesus affects our politics because we don't think of Jesus as being that relevant to the problems of our day. And so we have to go read secular books and say, well, okay, I know what Jesus says about this, but what's the culture say about it? Because, man, they are smart dudes out there. They have PhDs. Jesus didn't even go to college. And, and, and see, the thing is, the baseline assumption is that the world has something more wise to say than Jesus. Now, don't go political simplicity on me. I'm not saying you shouldn't read scholarly books from non-Christians. I'm just saying you probably shouldn't major in that more than you do the one God actually wrote. And see, it's the same instinct. I would say that, I would say that by and large, we all have too small of a vision of Jesus. Frankly, I, I think I can say every human, no matter how long you've been walking with Christ, has too small of a vision of Jesus. You will get to heaven and be like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? We cannot possibly comprehend the fullness of Christ. And so I'm not beating up on you when I say you have too small of a vision of Jesus. What I'm saying is you're a human made in the image of God to know his fullness. And there's more of him for you to know than you know today. And I think when our vision of Jesus is too small, it's very easy for our vision of earthly things to get too large. And I think this is at the heart of what's going on with all of this. And man, it's so easy to diagnose that. It's so easy um, to say, okay, maybe I'm a little too into this. Okay, this week I'll try to listen to less politics. Maybe I'll do a sermon podcast. Maybe I'll read my Bible more. It's so easy to say that, but that's never led to lasting change for anyone. You and I, we will never be able to reject all three of these things. What you'll do is maybe you'll reject, um, here's what I've done in my life. I've gone from political primacy to political complacency, which is not an improvement. You trade one error for the other and you're like, hey, look at that, Jesus, we're making movement. You will not be able, like, pagans can reject one of these three things. But if you want to reject all three of these things like Jesus... You can only do that if you see who Jesus really is. That is the only thing that will empower you to respond to this message. And so let me close just by reading um, what uh, one of the early followers of Jesus said about Jesus. Um, This comes from a man named Paul um, who literally saw the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus had a little conversation with him, changed his life. Pretty incredible. Here's what he writes, filled with the Holy Spirit to speak to all people in all ages um, who would struggle with having a small vision of Jesus. Here's what he says about Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so Paul later prays for another church. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, asking that the love, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, catch this, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Church, I believe every one of us this morning need our eyes open to that reality to some degree. 
we could all stand to know more of the riches of our inheritance in Christ. To see how Jesus is a greater king than any Caesar or president could ever be because Jesus has accomplished a greater salvation. And so what I'm going to do, I want to pray for us and then we're going to respond by singing the truths of what Jesus has done to rescue us from our real enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And by doing what only Jesus could do, rescuing us from every power that could ever possibly stand against us, Jesus is now seated above all powers, above all authorities, and worthy of all praise. So I'm going to pray for us. We are going to remember what Christ has done by taking communion, to remember how he has reconciled us to God through his blood, and that there's nothing we can say to God today that would surprise him about us. And then we'll give of our offerings to praise him for what he's done. And then we will sing of his praises together. And we will go out of here. My prayer is that we might go out of here more, maybe just a little bit more aware of the greatness of Jesus and a little less prone to these three things. And I just, church, I don't know that there's a more relevant way that we can proclaim the life of Jesus in our day than this. I mean, I mean think about this. What if the thing that was causing people to walk away, Christians and politics, became the thing that drove them back? To go, hey, we're not sure about your God or his morality, but we cannot deny the life you are bringing, and the love that you have for one another that we don't see anywhere else in the world. Wouldn't that be amazing? And that's exactly what Christ has came to do. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for sending your son to chase after um, rebels like us. Thank you for sending your son to chase after good church folk who love you, and maybe we just drift from you. Um, thank you for coming after all of us, no matter where we're at. Um, Father, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to um, get our eyes up onto Jesus a little bit more this morning. Um, I pray with Paul in Ephesians 1 that you might enlighten the eyes of our hearts as we sing the truths of the gospel and take communion and taste and see that you are good. Would you make this a morning where um, you refresh our hearts with your love for us and the inheritance we have in Christ? And in so doing, would you make us a more life-giving people when it comes to the topic of a politics? God, don't let us go from here condemning and picking on everyone based on what we heard today. Let us leave here uh, more aware of our own faults and more amazed at your love that meets us right where we're at. And because of that, that we could go out of here, sure, with some thoughts on what's going on in the world, but with some far greater thoughts on what you've done to make this place new. We love you. We ask you to do these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.